I'm Warren Smith, and today you'll be listening in on my conversation with pastor, author, and ministry leader, Tim Keller. You take the forgiveness you've gotten from God, and now you give it to other people. It's all through the scripture, and and actually, scripture is pretty much the source of the idea that forgiveness is important. Tim Keller is one of those men who both needs no introduction and simultaneously needs a robust introduction to fully communicate the scope of his life and work. As a pastor, he built Redeemer Presbyterian Church into one of the largest and most influential churches in the country, a church that is a force both in its hometown of New York City and nationally and around the world. As a writer, his books regularly land on bestseller list as well as best of list. They are celebrated for their theological depth as well as for their readability and stylistic excellence. He's also made his mark as a churchman and ministry leader. He's remained active in and accountable to his denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, even as his own profile has grown and as we've seen other celebrity pastors, by the way, that's a term that Tim Keller disdains, they've sought independence from the strictures of denominational governance. And he co-founded the Gospel Coalition, which has become a force within evangelicalism, as well as Redeemer City to City, a church planting organization that has helped start nearly a thousand churches, both here in the United States and around the world. Tim Keller has also been in the news lately because he was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We talk about his latest book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I?, the arc of his career, and how he's doing, both physically and spiritually, as he faces a grim cancer prognosis. I had this conversation with Tim Keller via Zoom. He spoke to me from his home in New York City. And we'll have that conversation right after this short break. How We Live invites and equips Christians to propel faith into action. This free worldview Bible study will spark rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions. These six videos from Summit Ministries offer life-on-life discipleship for churches, small groups, and families. Get free access today at summit.org slash listening in. Tim Keller, welcome to the program. I've got so many questions I want to ask you about. I almost don't know where to start, but I think it probably makes the most sense to start with your new book on forgiveness. Let me just ask kind of a basic question. Why this book? Why now? Well, generally, I have tried to write. The last 15 years, I've started writing books. Uh, I didn't didn't even write. I, I started most when I was in my late 50s, and I wanted to write books on things that I had a been in my pastoral ministry, my preaching ministry, been teaching about for years. So I could just put them into um, book form. I felt like it preserved uh, stuff that wisdom that God had given me through the scriptures. Um, Then why, why 
at this time is because I try to find something I've done a lot of teaching on, but also seems to be relevant for the moment. And I actually do think that we're starting to become in our society a lot more combative, a lot more harsh, denunciatory, I guess you could call it. And there's a lot more questioning of whether we should even do forgiveness. And so I thought, well, OK, here's something I've been teaching about forever. You can't you can't do marriage counseling as the pastor without talking about forgiveness. You can't do anything in the pastoral world without talking about forgiveness. But it felt like, wow, it looks like we're losing losing our grip on forgiveness as a society. So that's the reason I wrote the book. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as you said, you can't do marriage counseling. You can't hardly do any kind of counseling without talking about forgiveness. And likewise, you can't read the Bible without encountering forgiveness. In some ways, uh, I think maybe especially to the 21st century mind, forgiveness is one of those ideas that's hiding in plain sight when you look at Scripture. It's not one of those that we talk about as much as we should, but you really can't avoid it if you carefully read Scripture. And you could actually make the case, which I do in the book, is that the the prominence of forgiveness in uh, human thought actually comes from the Bible, because before the Bible, if you take a look at the Greeks and the Romans, for example, forgiveness was not one of the virtues. When you get to the Bible, especially in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, the Older Testament, uh, you have a lot of emphasis on uh uh, like Psalm 143, Psalm 130, uh, if you were to mark sins, who would stand? Uh, no one is righteous before you. So the idea that we need God's forgiveness is very strong in the Old Testament. And New Testament is just as strong, but it's a little more emphasis on how, giving forgiveness to other people. I mean, in the Old Testament, you don't have as, quite as much emphasis, you know, though Joseph forgives his brothers. But in the New Testament, it becomes very strong that you you take the forgiveness you've gotten from God and now you give it to other people. And that is, it's it's all through the scripture, and and actually, scripture is pretty much the source of the idea that forgiveness is important. Well. You know, the world sometimes has a definition for a word, and Scripture has a definition for a word that may or may not be the same. So why don't we um, just talk about the definition of forgiveness? You you say uh, at one point that, um, that false understandings of repentance and forgiveness are spiritually and socially fatal. I guess the other side of that coin is that that true definitions, biblical definitions, are life-giving. Uh, what is your definition of forgiveness? What is a biblical definition of forgiveness? Well, I do think a biblical definition is that you decide, I'm not going to take vengeance on this person. They're externally by going and trying to make them suffer as much as I've suffered, or internally by constantly beating up on them in my heart, imagining, you know, you might say sticking little pins in them in, the, in your heart. So I'm going to forgo vengeance. I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to do that both internally by turning my mind away from it, reminding myself that I'm a sinner and needs forgiveness too. And externally, I'm not going to just simply try to do payback. However, and you notice what I said is it's vengeance. It doesn't mean you can't pursue justice. It doesn't mean that you, uh, uh, you can't pursue for future victims sake, for God's sake, for justice's sake, even for the perpetrator's sake. It doesn't mean you can't go and say, look, some restitution has to be done here. Uh, uh, the law was broken. Some justice has to be done. You can do that and forgive. Because if you don't forgive, you will not be pursuing justice. You'll be pursuing vengeance. And vengeance is always excessive. And vengeance always eats you up while you're going after it. Hmm. So I would say 
that if you properly understand what forgiveness is, then you will be able to forgive and still pursue justice. If you don't understand what it means, then you're going to either you're going to probably choose between the two. You're either going to say, hey, when I forgive means I, I can't pursue justice at all or forgive means I, I don't have to forgive until this person has you know already you know been sentenced to death or something like that. So the right approach really helps you do both. Well, you actually spend a good bit of time talking about how forgiveness and justice are not um, opposite ends of a spectrum or a continuum, that that is a false dichotomy. And likewise, you say the same thing about God's love and God's wrath, that, yeah. that when we separate those two and, and put one on one end of a spectrum and the other on the other end of the spectrum, that we've departed from the way of truth. We've departed from Scripture. Can you say more about that as well? Yeah, from our point of view, they seem to be contradictory. They can't be because I believe that God can't have contradictory attributes. In fact, there's a doctrine. It's called the simplicity of God, which is a strange word. But in in theological uh, circles, we understand that God's attributes are all aspects of just who he is. There's a, a simplicity to him. So if he's wrathful and forgiving, it doesn't seem like oh that they seem to be against each other but they can't be they look it looks that way to us the best way i've ever heard anybody explain this was a, a lloyd jones sermon dr david martin lloyd jones who said god is good he's so good that he wants to forgive you but he's so good that he can't just uh not punish sin see to not punish sin would mean he's not very good you know if you're really good you have to punish sin you can't just say oh you know let it happen but if you're really good, you don't want to punish people who you want to forgive them. And so how can his goodness be as you know fully expressed? And the answer is on the cross. Uh, the wrath of God was satisfied. That is the, uh, the punishment of sin happened, but it fell on Jesus so that that God could forgive. And um, I think, therefore, it's an apparent contradiction, but not a true contradiction. Right. One of the things I love about your book, Tim, is that you uh, use some real-life examples of people who engage in radical forgiveness. Uh, Desmond Tutu, Rachel Den Hollander, uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, the Amish community who um, so, you know survived the nickel mines um, mm -hmm. slaughter a few years ago. Can you say more about your strategy there? I mean, we, we don't really have time to unpack each and every one of those stories, but was your strategy there to help people see that these were not abstract ideas, but they are ideas that we can truly give legs and feet to? Yeah, I don't I actually don't think you can teach any theological principle without the stories. How does it flesh out in real life? We are not brains in vats. We are not just ideas, we're embodied beings. And to be embodied means we don't really understand it as real and abstract principle unless we see it in a story. By the way, Jonathan Edwards, uh, who's vilified by many and idolized by others, but Edwards talks about the fact that a, a truth isn't real until you can put it in sense experience. So he would say, um, our guys are consuming fire is a biblical statement, of course. Uh, he says, to say our God is holy doesn't really completely grab us, but to say our God is holy, like a, he's like a consuming fire. We've, we've actually experienced fire through our bodies, 
And so suddenly it makes the whole idea of holiness real. A fire is both wonderful and beautiful and at the same time, you know, dangerous too. And you, it can't be trifled with. So I think the same thing with forgiveness. Forgiveness is just a wonderful concept. But until you actually see it fleshed out in uh, uh, in real stories, I just don't think people grasp it. Yeah. You know, Tim, you mentioned um, two uh, sort of cultural uh, moments in your book, but you don't spend a lot of time on them. And I'm just wondering if I could get you to say a little bit more about how we could apply the principles of forgiveness, both individually, personally, but also as a community and as a culture to two particular areas. One is the sexual abuse movement, the Me Too movement. And of course, Rachel Den Hollander, who you mentioned, has been a leader in that uh, movement, bringing a Christian understanding to that that. Movement movement. And the other would be uh, uh, racial um, healing, um, racial reconciliation, which is maybe an overused word at this point. I've been hearing racial re- reconciliation since the 1980s, and um, <laughs> the word itself may be a little out of fashion. But how would we apply the, the principles of your book to this? Do, do we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the 21st century in America around these issues? Wow, that's a great question, because even though these are two places where the questioning of forgiveness is coming up um, in the book, I mentioned that when um, relatives of some of the people that were killed in the, the Charleston shooting in the uh, the church there and uh, a, a, a avowed white supremacist went in and killed people. And when African-American relatives of the people who were killed forgave dylan roof that was the name of the the shooter there were people who said you know black people have to stop doing this this is why we keep getting shot we're just letting them walk all over us we shouldn't forgive and the me too movement is especially also questioning forgiveness partly because forgiveness has been used against women where women are called to forgive their perpetrators and just put the perpetrators back in power right away and so on the surface of it, they both look like these are things that are coming up right now in the culture. And so you're right to put them together. On the other hand, I feel like they're awfully different. In other words, forgiveness really applies very, very differently, I think, because in a sense, African-Americans are asking the question, how do we deal with oppressive white people as a group? How do we? I, I actually think when you are asking a one group of people to be more conciliatory and forgiving toward another group of people, that's much more complicated. And the place I would go, even though it's not written, this book I'm going to mention for this one, is not written in a most, it's an academic book. Sorry, it's just not a popularly written book, but it's Slav Vol's book, Exclusion and Embrace, that yep. he wrote and originally developed. He's a Croatian, and he was originally developed it when he was talking about in the Balkans, when there's all this uh, terrible violence going on between the Croatians and the Bosnians and the Serbians and all that, how does one group of people, you know, not just fold their hands like this, but actually open their hands and say, we want to be reconciled. And so that's, I think it's very complicated. I have to admit that as a, an older white American, I'm not really sure I'm the best person to go there, but it's a great book. The Me Too movement is different because generally speaking, uh, I I know that in churches, Warren, I have seen it happen. Uh, Women were abused by male leaders of some kind, and the leadership of the church came together and said, you need to forgive him because he's repented. And that's what the Bible says. And that means don't go to the police. 
that means, you know, don't, don't, don't talk about it anymore. You just have to forgive him and we're going to restore him because you have to restore repenting people. And uh, that is a real abuse of what the Bible says. As I already mentioned, to forgive the man does, it does mean you do have to work on your own heart. And it's not going to be easy, by the way. You also can't ask an abused woman just to do it like that. But you do need to work on your own heart so you don't hate the person. And so you don't have vengeance in your heart for years, which is going to distort all your relationships. Yes, you do need to work on that. But be kind to the woman. And then when it comes to actually uh, doing justice, she ought to be doing justice. This man should be there should be consequences for this man. And I see those as so different. The application I try to lay out some of that in the book. I do more for the Me Too movement and the woman than I do for African-Americans with, uh, you know, looking at their history. But they are, uh, you brought them up. It's true that they both bring the issue of forgiveness to the fore at the same time in somewhat same way. But I don't think the application would be similar. It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. Well, that's a good word. Uh, Tim, I'd like to pivot in our conversation if I could and maybe step back from the book. What we have said so far doesn't come near uh, to covering everything in the book. So go get the book, go read the book. And uh, let me just, uh, if I could pivot a little bit and talk about some of the other things that you've been involved with in your your life. You know, uh, Tim, as as you know, my uh, sister and brother-in-law, uh, Jackie and Lane Arthur, were in grad school in New York right about the time that you started Redeemer Church. Yeah. And um, I would visit them in New York and attend your church when there were maybe 150 or 200, maybe no more than 300 people in the church at that time. And uh, it, it struck me that at that time— you didn't have a plan to be a movement or a mega church. that you were trying to be faithful in that place, in that moment. And God prospered it, and things, you know, obviously have gone from there. But um, am I right in that? Uh, when you look back on those early days, what, what are your memories of that era? And would you do things differently, or do you think that things unfolded about the way that they should? Well, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian. So because of that, I did not go there saying, I think the Lord's going to bring revival through what we're doing here. I, I, I see a whole movement. I see, you know, we're going to be doing all this stuff and it's really, we're going to change the city. And I just didn't go that way. I, I did not go with that kind of confidence, frankly. I even in my first got there when people said, are you sure God's called you here? I said, yeah. And they said, so you really expect a lot of growth? I said, oh, I don't know about that. And I said, you know, God could call me here to fail, to prepare me for something else. So I'm really not sure that this is going to, this church is going to be successful. I'm just, I just know I'm supposed to try. That's what God called me to. And I have to admit that with a lot of evangelical Christians, that befuddled them because they thought, well, why would you move here unless God had shown you that you were going to create this great big movement? But then... We did have a movement. <laughs> what happened, Warren, was church did grow rather large. We did plant a whole bunch of other churches in the city. We did spin out all kinds of organizations like Hope for New York and um, and Redeemer City to City and the Redeemer Counseling Center. And then there were other things like you know Geneva School and the Avail Pregnancy Center, all those things that all that kind of came out. When I look back on the whole thing after 33 years, it's astounding. 
what what happened. But honestly, I had nothing at all like that in mind when I went. Was there a moment where that changed, though, where you said, you know, I'm just coming here to New York. I don't know whether I'm going to fail as preparation for the next thing that I do or succeed. Was there a moment where you said, well, wait a minute, I think this is working. I need to dig in. God has given me something larger than I had originally planned that I need to start preparing myself to be a good steward of? Yes, it was. I don't remember exactly where it was, but Kathy and I both, my wife, Kathy, remember at a certain point saying, it looks like God's going to let this be a go. In other words, it looks like we're going to be able to make ends meet, pay my salary, you know, have a have a growing church. So that probably happened. Um, that, that actually happened pretty quickly because there was a lot of people. A lot of people became Christians quickly. What was surprising, Warren, and you probably would have seen this if you were there, is it was there was a high percentage of singles. I mean, Lynn and Jackie were odd because they were married. <laughs> But most of them were singles, and it's easier for singles to get other singles to come to some church. It's harder to get families to bring families to church if they're not already Christian. But the, they just came, and a lot of people became Christians. And so the growth happened, and my guess is probably within nine months, I saw that we were probably going to be staying there. And somewhere probably a year or two after that, I said, I may stay here the rest of my life. But I just don't mm-hmm. remember exactly there was there was no epiphany or some dramatic incident, but it probably within within two years, I realized this looks like God's going to do something um, pretty extensive here. And I probably may spend the rest of my life here. So. Yeah. You know, Tim, you've already mentioned once that you are a Presbyterian, and not only are you a Presbyterian, but, you, you know, you're in a specific denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And I think one of the things also that I observed about your career is that I, w- I would, uh, even though I'm an Anglican now, I spent, you know, years in the PCA and would go to uh, General Assembly. I would see you there at General Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure you were speaking some of the time at General Assembly. There were probably moments where they asked you to speak. But I most vividly remember you not speaking, you sitting in the audience um, among the fathers and brothers, uh, listening to other people speak. And I, I wanted you to say a little bit about that, because I've talked to a lot of megachurch pastors. I report on a lot of megachurch pastors. And one of the things that I see that is a problem of of folks that ultimately encounter problems in their ministry is that they lose that connection to their denomination, to a sense of actually sitting in the pew rather than always having to be in front of the microphone. Was that something that was important to you to continue to be an active churchman within the PCA while you were building something in New York? Well, you know, yeah, but to be honest, I, it, it never seemed... Why wouldn't I? I mean, obviously, my health right now, I can't go to General Assembly. I really wish I could. My doctors won't let me. I've got pancreatic cancer. I'm taking immunotherapies, and basically, my immune system makes it impossible to go out. But I went to every General Assembly for years and years, and then probably every other one in the last couple of years for various reasons. I was often traveling. But I don't know why else I would not do that. And and when it comes to speaking, the real point is, if I never heard anybody saying anything up there that I wanted to say, I guess I would have gotten up there, but there was always somebody saying what I would have said anyway. So why do I have to be the one to get up to to say it? Mm -hmm. That's how I always thought. 
And so I, you know, honestly, Warren, it didn't really ever occur to me that I wouldn't just go and do what I did. Just because my church got bigger doesn't mean I really should be thinking about my involvement any different. It got harder as the church got bigger, you know, to serve on committees and things like that. It got very, very difficult. Yeah. So it's true that the, a big church does actually make it more difficult in some ways to get, be as involved in the denomination as you were before. So I'm not trying to say there wasn't any pressure, but the idea that, well, I'm too important for this, that actually, I that, that's kind of what you're hinting at. I don't um, no. I'm I'm Presbyterian, which means my church is just one chapter in the Presbytery. It's not this empire. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tim, you mentioned that you were a little bit later in life when you started writing books. I'm, I, I, and uh, I'm probably going to mess up the chronology here, but my recollection is that The Reason for God came out around 2002. And um, that was a big book. It was a bestseller. That was 2008, actually. Oh, 2008. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I did mess that up badly. Well, it that even makes my point even a little bit more because that was really, I mean, even though you'd written some books before, that was your first really big book, 2008, kind of doing the math on that. That was 14 years ago. I mean, you were, like you say, in your late 50s uh, when that happened. Um, did that book change your life? Did that book change your ministry? Yeah, the reason for God it made the bestseller list, the New York Times bestseller list, which shocked me. And I would say it, it changed my life, my pastoral life, not my personal life. It was fine. But my pastoral life and ministry, I think it didn't help. That's the nicest way I put it. Because what began to happen before that book, when I was done, or I, we did multiple services at Redeemer, I would, you know, I would do the benediction. I would stand, walk down front and just talk to people. And you know who I was talking to? I was talking to my church members and I was talking to New Yorkers who had been brought by church members. And I was evangelizing and, and pastoring people. And after the book came up, more and more, I would have people who say, well, I'm from Dallas and I read your book and I loved it. And when I came here, I wanted to come to church. Would you sign my book? Hmm. And that's, I got to the place, I'd say about five years in after that, like by 2012 or so, the average person that I would talk to, even though only we knew only 5% of the people that were there on a Sunday were outsiders who came because they wanted to hear Tim Keller preach, only 5%. They're the ones who pushed down and want to come shake my hand. And so it, it actually pushed me away from the kind of informal pastoring and, and evangelism that I was doing every day, which I loved. I loved the fact that I wasn't just preaching on Sunday, but I was actually talking to people who lived in the community, either Christians or non-Christians. I love that. And that was taken away from me. And I was very upset about it. And the books did it. It, you know, it made us a destination church for people who were in New York City. And it didn't ruin the church, but it really, it was, it was a real, I, I found it to be kind of grievous. Mm. Yeah. Well, Tim, since you mentioned your cancer, I, I was kind of avoiding, uh, you know, this is an easy question to ask and a hard question to answer, which is why I try to avoid it when I'm talking to people like you who, are, who have a, a sickness. But the question is simply, how are you doing? How's it going? How's the cancer treatment going? And how's your health right now? Well, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, which was first actually seen in February of 2020. So it's coming up on three years. And anybody who knows anything about pancreatic cancer at all knows that, that I've already been, God has been extraordinarily good to me because 
80% of people are dead within a year of the diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer, 80%, something like that. And so here I am uh, having my third Christmas with my children, my grandchildren. And so I could not be more uh, grateful. There's ups and downs with the treatment. Sometimes I feel pretty sick. Sometimes I don't. But right now I'm actually doing pretty well. But you live from scan to scan, Warren. You, anybody with active cancer, uh, you basically know that your next scan is going to be a month from now. And so right now I feel fine, but I don't know what this next scan is going to show. And that's how you live. Yeah. We probably yeah. should all live this way. Spiritually, we should realize that it's God keeping us alive every second and that our days are numbered and we will live only as long as he wants. But before something like this comes into your life, you you live with the illusion of, of immortality. I had it. I think everybody's got it. So I don't I don't um, spiritually. It's been enormously great. And actually, Kathy and I both say to each other that even if the next scan, the doctors would say, you're cured. It's never happened before. You're totally cured. It's all gone. We would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life we had before I had cancer. That weird to say we would never want to go. We would never want to lose what God has given us, which is far closer communion with him. Yeah. Uh, so spiritually, never been better. Physically, I have certainly been better, but I'm, I'm doing OK. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned how the books changed your ministry. How has the cancer changed your ministry? Obviously, you've already mentioned how it changed your personal spiritual life, but uh, how has it changed your ministry in any way? You mentioned, for example, I think it was in the book, it may have been a podcast that I listened to in preparation, um, Ray Backey, um, who, who would, um, when he knew he was near death, he was calling people that yeah. he, and uh, kind of, he, it, it changed his ministry into one more of mentorship, I guess. I think I got that right. How is it changing your ministry, if at all? That's actually pretty wise there. Uh, that was that was a good inference, uh, Warren. I do feel that basically I should, I, I, I have changed to be more of a mentor. That is to say, I'm much quicker to call people up uh, younger leaders that I know, just to encourage them, just to say, hey, I know you're taking a lot of flack right now. I want to care about you. Or even say, is there any way I could be of some help to you? Or, um, you know, an example, here's just an example of this, is that there is a young guy uh, that lives in Australia, wrote a big book that nobody wanted to publish. That's it. I'm loving it. It's a magnificent book. It is a magnificent book, but you can see why a lot of people didn't want. Oh, to sure. Yeah, it's very hard. It's a difficult book. It actually is really high level academic stuff, but brought down to the place where I think the average college educated yeah. person can. By the way, we're talking about biblical critical theory by Christopher Watkin. We I was I held the book up, <laughs> but but we didn't say what. Well, I'm sorry, Tim. Keep going. And I actually basically I I knew Chris a little bit, and he had sent me some parts of it, and I. At a certain point, I, I, he said, I, this is never going to see the light of day. And I said, we got to do something about it. And I just pushed him. I was very nice. There's a little note in the forward saying, thank you, Tim. But, and basically I pushed and I, and I, did a little, and I wrote the forward and uh, trying to make sure it got out there. See, that's much more of what I should be doing. Not, I'm going to write books if I, as long as I stay alive, but I should also be helping other people, younger people write books. So the mentorship thing is definitely something I don't think I had Honestly, Warren, I think I should have recognized I was 69 years old when I was diagnosed with cancer. I should have shifted into that mentorship before. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I should have said, hey, you're almost 70 years old. 
why, why aren't you doing more of that? And I, so it, that's exactly the effect it's had. Well, it's a magnificent book and I do appreciate your forward because it brought it to my attention and I'm reading it and I'm going to actually have Chris on the program on my podcast next week. Tim, I know um, you've got a limited amount of time, so I want to, I want to bring this to a close, but your friend, I think, you know, David Brooks, I think David Brooks is a, is a mm-hmm. friend of yours. Uh, he, he, he wrote a couple of years ago, very famously about the difference between living a life to add to your resume versus living a life to add to your eulogy. And I, I guess um, I want to use that as context for saying, how do you want people to remember you? Um, what do you want the legacy of Tim Keller to be? The only thing I want to be remembered for is I love my children, my grandchildren. Beyond that, I don't think it's my job to know or care. That sounds a little weird. I mean, I, 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 I would, yeah, that's it. I would hope that they would see that. I don't, I think I'm a better father than I have been in the past. It is really hard to to have your church grow really big and still be a great parent. And I, I, I bet you there's some out there, but it's pretty difficult. But God has let me live long enough to become a lot better parent and to be a better parent. But you know what, Warren? I don't think I care or think I should care too much about how I'm remembered. Let, let the chips fall where they may. Let the chips fall where God wants them. You've been listening in on my conversation with Tim Keller. His new book is Forgive. Why should I and how can I? A couple of quick notes before we go. First, if you're new to the program, check out the Listening In Archive. I've done more than 500 long-form interviews over the past nine years for World News Group. They include pastors, theologians, musicians and actors, entrepreneurs, atheists, and agnostics, interesting people of all kinds. To find these interviews, just go to the World News Group website, that's WNG.org, and use the search engine to explore. Listening In comes to you from World News Group, and this program is just one of the many podcasts and publications available. To find out more about our complete family of products, visit WNG.org. Tune in next week to hear my conversation with Rick Warren. Rick Warren just retired from Saddleback Church, where he was pastor for more than 40 years, but he's not done. We look back at his remarkable career at Saddleback, and we look forward to what's next. The producer for today's program is Paul Butler. Johnny Franklin is our technical producer. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and you've been listening in. Now We Live invites and equips Christians to propel faith into action. This free worldview Bible study will spark rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions. Watch Summit Ministries' worldview video series for free at summit.org slash listening in. These six videos from Summit Ministries offer life-on-life discipleship for churches, small groups, and families. Get free access today at summit.org slash listening in.